0: guest here. It's so good to have you. I'm Pastor Brian Giaquinto, I'm one of the elders here. And before we begin our message, a couple of announcements I'd like to give to you. You probably have noticed, I mentioned this on Wednesday night if you were here, and if you're not, you should be. But on Wednesday nights, you'll notice that there are some blue pallets containers that are sitting out front. And you might have wondered what that's all about. Well, I'm happy to report that those are building materials so we can get going on this new classroom expansion that we have. Amen. And after service, not during the service, but after service, you can walk around to the side a little bit. and You can actually see the work actually beginning. So praise God for allowing us to be able to move forward with that. Uh, Keep in prayer for Pastor Scott and Gina as they're traveling right now overseas. They'll be back here on Wednesday to give us a great report. Uh, Summer Worship Choir. Love this choir every single Sunday as they lead us into worship. Well, we have a special opportunity You don't have to try out or anything like that. Just be here over the summers, 8.15 on those risers. We would love to have you. Also, June 26th from 5 to 8 p.m. We'll have a family picnic. Make sure you come out to that. Of course, more information will be given as we move forward. Um, Also, out at the east entrance in this direction... There is a table with sign-ups for our many discipleship opportunities. Soul care, discipleship training program, uh, Christ Bible College, Christ Theological Seminary. We believe in discipleship here. And if you're a believer in Christ, you need to be involved in discipleship. Maybe you don't even know where to start. That's great. That's what soul care is for. We have those uh, to sign up for there. Maybe you're thinking I should go to a discipleship training program. If you haven't been to Soul Care, or perhaps you haven't been through Pastor Bobby's uh, Fundamentals of the Faith or Partners program, why don't you do those first? And then you can move into uh, discipleship training programs, like a, a progression, if you will. We also encourage you to really consider auditing or becoming a student in Christ Bible College or Christ Theological Seminary. Such amazing opportunities there to grow in our knowledge of what Scripture says. And finally, a most special announcement, because I am a proud grandfather to a one-year-old grandson today, Benjamin Turt One. I'm so happy about this kid. I love him so much. And he is, objectively, he is the cutest grandson ever. That's not biased. That's just objective truth. <laughs> well, let's begin this morning. If you turn your Bibles to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Ephesians, chapter 6. I was grateful for Pastor Rick reading this passage for us this morning. I co-teach a Bible fellowship group, Meets in the Fellowship Hall, uh, with Pastor Jason Tom Sheehan. We've been going through a really neat series uh, where we take, each of us take like, a section of our statement of faith, and then we expound on it in a Bible study. It's been a lot of fun, but this sermon is very much like a successor to a two-part series that I did where I taught on the nature of angels, demons and say, boy, Americans, people in general, but Americans in particular, really have an interesting preoccupation with angels, demons, and the supernatural, don't we? Whether it's collecting those freakish looking baby angels that are real chubby with the impossibly tiny wings that probably scare me more than a demon would, or it's watching movies like Legion or The Exorcist or Constantine or TV shows like Supernatural People have this unusual fascination with the supernatural. But despite mainstream misconceptions, the Bible has a lot to say about angels, demons, and particularly the struggle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. So I want to ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you think of spiritual warfare? Why does it even matter? Why bother with spiritual warfare? The reason is really twofold. I mean, one, it's all over Scripture. It's evident everywhere in Scripture. Two, we are called to spiritual warfare. Christian, you are at war. And you have been so the moment you were born. If you're here by faith in Jesus Christ, in fact, you have served two different causes in two different armies that are radically opposed to each other. These facts may astound you, you may even question or doubt the claim, but it's true because scripture says it's true. Spiritual opposition is part of the biblical worldview, and we must be equipped for spiritual warfare. We're in the book of Ephesians, and that's really great. Tom taught in Ephesians on Wednesday. Pastor Jace taught in Ephesians last Sunday. So it seems like the Lord wants us in Ephesians. But in this particular letter, Ephesians, the Apostle Paul establishes like a center for the study of spiritual warfare. In fact, nearly every single chapter touches on the subject. Paul describes deliverance and the call of the Christian, the dark world in which we live in as children of the light. In the first chapter, particularly verses 1 through 14, it's one big long sentence in the original languages. The Father appoints us to salvation through his predestinating love. The Son accomplishes salvation through his saving work on the cross. The Spirit applies the finished redemption as he unites us to Christ and seals us to the Father. Now this salvation is rooted in the triune God. And it's expressed in his, Christ's victory over the dominion of Satan. In fact, before we really get to Ephesians 6, go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. And look at chapter 1. Let's begin with verse 18. So after going through this litany, uh, this amazing exhortation and knowledge of what Christ has done for us on the cross, the Father's love, this triune expression of redemption, Paul breaks out in a prayer. And I'd like to know what Paul, of all the things the Apostle Paul could be praying for these people, this is what he says in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance of the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. Angels, demons, rulers, powers, authority, all of it is subject to Christ because what he's done. Right from the start, Paul gives us an important principle for understanding spiritual warfare. You see, deliverance from the bondage of sin And the tyranny of the devil does not come from our conquest of Satan. It comes from Christ's. The victory is his. The spoils are ours. And that sounds like a really good deal, doesn't it? Christ has the victory. We get to enjoy the victory. We fight in his strength. We live out his victory. Chapter 2, Paul speaks about the grace of God reaching out in our personal experience. He said in uh, verses 1 and 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Here it is, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Chapter 4, we see that those who are alive in Christ and freed from the bondage of sin are to walk in a manner worthy of the name of Christ. We're no longer to walk like the Gentiles do who are still in the grip of satan holding them down put simply we are no longer the sons of disobedience upon whom the wrath of god will come and now we we get down to this last chapter and this stream of thought that's been winding its way through the epistle finds some practical considerations for us as we are in the middle of a spiritual battle ephesians 6 deals with our enemy the battle plan, our weapons, and our strategies. Again, I say, Christian, you are at war. There is a war inside of you. Your flesh, the remnants of the sin nature, which Paul says wages war against your soul. when It's trying to tempt you to walk away from the path of righteousness and holiness of God. But there's a war outside of you. It's mainly the world which the devil uses for his purposes. Every Christian, no matter how humble, no matter how simple, is involved in this war. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for the battle? You see, my goal this morning is to show you from this text that you can be victorious in the battle. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to cower in fear. God provides all we need to live out this battle until either he comes back or he calls me home, whichever calls first. From our text, I want you to see four battle tactics of the victorious Christian. There's four battle tactics that if you employ, you will find victory in the spiritual fight. And the first is this. The victorious Christian stands in the power of God. You will be victorious in your daily spiritual struggles if you stand not in your strength, but in the power of God. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start reading with verse 10. I read really verses 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the de- the devil. So he says, finally, we're going to start with that first word. <laughs> finally, after I've said everything that I've said, I have a concluding thought now. I've been talking to you about the glory of Christ. The glory that is your salvation and this dichotomy, this this. Spirit, this kingdom of darkness and this kingdom of light that you've been rescued from. Now in light of all of this, here's something you need to know. Be strong in the Lord. Then he adds this little exegetical explanation in the strength of his might in case we didn't understand what be strong in the Lord means. Not be strong in your own strength. I wonder how many of us Many of you might be going through spiritual battles and you feel defeated because too often we're trying to rely on our own strength. We try to muster up the courage to get out there and fight the schemes of the devil or whatever we call them, or our own flesh, and we're doing it in our own strength and we find ourselves flat on our face time and time again. Paul doesn't say, muster it up, man. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get in the fight. No, he says, be strong in the Lord. Self-reliance in spiritual warfare is suicidal. Believers do not strengthen themselves in and of themselves. Our strength must come from an external source, namely the Lord. And when he says the Lord, he's really talking about Christ. Christ has been the theme all the way throughout this letter. He's talking about the glory of Christ and what he has done. strength of an earthly general. So we're gonna talk military for a minute. The strength of an earthly general is really found in his troops, is it not? I remember being in the military, and we'd always uh, on occasion, well maybe not always, but on occasion we get these little eager beaver lieutenants that would graduate either officer candidate school or they come from West Point and they wanna come in and run the show. And they thought they knew everything. They really didn't know a whole lot. They thought they were God's gift to the military, but they weren't. And time and time again, we would, we'd see it. A new guy would come in, and he said, say, we're going to do it like this. And we'd all be like, oh, that's not going to work. But we did it. We were underwater, so we had to do it. And occasionally, my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Love, kind of an oxymoron type of name for who he was, but Sergeant Love would say, LT, just suggestion. I don't think that's going to work. And we're going to do it anyway. All right. And of course, it would fall flat. One time, once, we had a lieutenant come in from officer training school. Of course, he barked out the story. We were doing this, this competition among our battalion. We were out doing field maneuvers, and we were going to score. We were going to be the top. And he told us what we were going to do. I'm like, oh, here we go. Yeah, that's not going to work. And Sergeant Love came and said, Lieutenant, I, all due respect, I really don't think that's going to work. And he almost fell over when the lieutenant said, really, why do you think that? and well, he would give the reason why he don't think this would work. He says, "Well, what do you suggest, sergeant?" And he would give the explanation of what we think we should do. And he said, "You know what? I will take that under recommendation. Why don't you do that?" Well, we made him look good that day. Because the earthly the, the strength of an earthly general is found in the troops, but in the Christian life, the strength of the troops is in their general. Jesus Christ is the general. He comes in with all knowledge, all wisdom, all experience, all power. And we trust in him, and him alone. Turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Because what does that mean for us? As we stand in the power of God. Okay, we can can grab a hold of that intellectually. Stand in the power of God. What does that mean? How does that work out? How can we ground this truth? Joshua chapter 1, uh, we're going to start with verse 6, but just some context. Okay, Israel's ready to go into the promised land after 40 long years of wandering around the same mountain, the same path of desert, ready to go in. Moses has just died. Joshua is now appointed leader of Israel. And God is encouraging Joshua here. And he says in verse 6 Be strong and courageous. So be strong in the Lord, right? Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the left or to the right, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have success. Now here's a key. Now have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That command the exhortation to be strong in the Lord to be strong and courageous was rooted and grounded in the fact that the Lord would be with him everywhere he went Christian do we not have that same exhortation to us strong in the Lord stand in him Christ will never leave you nor forsake you what did he say in Matthew chapter 28 starting with verse 18 all authority has been in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ is with us everywhere we go. Because of the sealing of the Spirit, he dwells within us. We can be strong and take our power, really, is in the strength of the Lord because Christ is with us. How many of you have experienced the strength that the Lord provides because of the nearness of Christ in your life? Read the scriptures. The witness of the Spirit helped you to really apprehend something, and you had strength. It's because the Lord is with you. The strength in the Lord is a recurring thing throughout the scriptures. We see it most notably with King David. The book of Psalms and then his account of his life in 2 Samuel. We see that he's always strengthening himself in the Lord. Psalm 18, verses 31 and 32. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God, the God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless? Verse 39 You have girded me with strength for battle. That's what we need. That's what Paul's talking about. The spiritual battle that we have. We need strength in the Lord. He says, You have girded me with strength for battle. This is David, this is the warrior. God gave him the strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. I didn't subdue my enemies. I didn't have the strength to do this. You, God, and you alone gave me the strength. You, God, and you alone subdued my enemies. I just had to watch and praise you. That's really what we do. 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 15, the armies of Moab and Ammon were, were invading the nation of Israel. And King Jehoshaphat had no idea what to do. It was an overwhelming force. And so instead of trying to figure something out on their own, he did something pretty shocking for a king of Israel at the time. He stopped and prayed. Lord, what do we do? I have no idea what to do. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, take courage. Don't be afraid, for the battle is not yours, it is God's. The battle is the Lord's. And the spiritual battles that we face on a daily basis, whether internal or external, those battles are the Lord's to win for you. You just be strong in him. Now back to Ephesians. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1, I, I read that to you just as we began. But he said that all authority has been given to him. Colossians 2 Verses 13 through 15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and put them to spectacle. He disarmed them. He took their weapons away. What is a primary weapon that Satan wields on people? The power of death. Now, because of Christ, we can say, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? There's none. You've been disarmed. Yes, this body may wither away and die, but I will be with the Lord forever. The battle is the Lord's. Why are we trying to fight Christ's battle for him? I want to paint you a picture of what we will see. Now, the battle is won. The victory's won. The rulers have been disarmed. They're powerless. They're raging, but they're powerless. And but we know that it will be fully and finally realized at the very end of all things when Christ conquers uh, all sin, evil, and death. Just quickly, go to Revelation chapter 19. Let me give you a picture of what you will see and why Christ really doesn't need our help. Revelation 19. We're going to look with verse, starting with verse 11. Revelation 19 verse 11. I mean, this doesn't make you want to worship Christ. We're going to slap you, make sure you're awake. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. Who are we talking about here? Jesus. And the armies in which are at heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. We just keep going. The picture is amazing, but we don't really have time. Do you see why you can stand in the power of God in the spiritual battles? That's the one who fights for you. That's someone that I want fighting my battles for me. My pathetic attempts at fighting these battles are just that. Pathetic compared to that. But there's more. Right? There's more to this passage. Ephesians, Back to Ephesians 6, verse 11. He says to put on the full armor of God. We'll get to that. We're going to speak of that a little more in detail as we move on. But what's the purpose now? So why are we to, uh, what are we to do with this power of God? Right? He said to, to be in the power of God. What are we to do with it? Got to do something with it. Power has to have a purpose. What does he say? Verse 11. So that you will be able to what? Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You know, I was I was reading this really read the whole book for context, making sure I understand the full context. And I found something very interesting about this. In Ephesians 4, you see Paul says to walk in unity. He says to walk in holiness. Ephesians 5 is to walk in love. To walk in the light, abstaining from the dark deeds of the flesh. Walk in wisdom. And he doesn't use the word walk in the latter part of Ephesians 5. He does say walk in a godly family, in a manner of speaking. Walk, walk, walk. Walk, but then chapter six, stand. Isn't that interesting? Paul would tell us to walk in these things, but when it comes to resisting the enemy and this spiritual struggle that we have, he says, stand. What is the commonality of all the walking? The walking in unity and holiness and love. This is all Progressive sanctification. This is us growing and being close to Christ. This is the real fight that we have. is to become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And in those things, we pursue, we move. Because if we're not growing, there's something wrong. Now, there's little dips on the progressive sanctification chart, of course. But the Lord always calls us to repentance so that we keep pushing forward, being like Christ. But here, he says, stand Firm against the schemes of the devil. The one who stands is not pushed around, but firmly holds their position. In terms of warfare, it does not connote an offensive, but a defensive stance to hold your ground. Reminded of uh, all those real rah-rah guy kind of movies, and I'm thinking of Braveheart when... The, British, the English soldiers are charging at, at the line. And, and you know, Mel Gibson, his brave heart, is like, hold, hold. And they're all like, keep holding. That's what he's saying. When the enemy is attacking you, you hold your ground. We are never called to go on the offensive against Satan. Maybe you remember, some of you might remember in the late 80s and 90s, the spiritual warfare movement. A big deal back in those days. So we're going to find the devil under every rock and tree and command him to flee. And and we will walk neighborhoods commanding spirits to leave. And we were never once commanded to do that. When Peter was in prison and the angel was ready to crack open the thing, did he call upon an angel to do it? No. We're called to hold. Now, Jesus had authority over unclean spirits. But he had it by virtue of his divinity. The apostles did that. By virtue as in their nature, as their special representatives, their apostolic nature. But beyond that, the witness of church history even. Is you don't see that happening. Because we're not called to do that. We're called to stand. And to stand against what? says Satan's schemes. So who is Satan? Who is the devil? The devil schemes. Who is the devil? He's a fallen angel. He was a created being, just like any other angel there. We don't really have time to go into it, but if, you know, I encourage you, read Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a, there's a lament against the king of Tyre. Uh, the city of Tyre is like a city-state, very affluent, wealthy, uh, really kind of at the time would be on the border of like modern-day Syria and Israel, a coastal town, a lot of wealth, a lot of importance. And just, you kind of went off the rails, as most of those folks would do. And, and, the, and the Ezekiel was called to prophesy against him. And the second half, he's really not talking about the king of Tyre anymore. He's talking about Satan. You were there in the garden. You were the, appoint, you were the anointed cherub. At some point, Satan fell. We don't have a lot of detail on it. There was pride in his position, pride in his appearance. The scripture says he was close to the seal of perfection. And from those things, he fell into sin and God cast him out of heaven. Revelation 12, you see the devil uh, who is referred to as the dragon, that great serpent of old with his tail. He sweeps a third of the stars of heaven with him and those become the fallen angels or what we know as demons. We are to stand Firm against the schemes of that one. And it sounds pretty frightening, doesn't it? This great dragon from old takes a third of the angels with him. We're to stand firm against him. But we can do it because Christ has provided everything we need to do it. So, what are these schemes? How do we know a scheme of the enemy? Well, Jesus said in John 8 and verse 44 Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Therefore, all of his schemes will be based upon lies and designed to deceive believers. Notice I didn't say unbelievers. All of his schemes, if you're a Christian, all of his schemes are designed to deceive you. Why not an unbeliever? They're already deceived. They're slaves. They're caught up in what Satan is doing, and they don't even know it. But now that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the marvelous light of God's kingdom, now Satan's tactic is to deceive you. How does he do this? How does he accomplish these things? Revelation 12 calls Satan the accuser. He likes to accuse you. Have you ever struggled with a little bit of sin? And you felt this little nagging down in your life. Man, are you really a Christian? How could you possibly have done that? All the things God has done for you, You see, Satan is a created being. He's not a creator. Therefore, he's limited. He just finds what works and just kind of repackages it generation after generation. He did the same thing to Job. When he went to heaven, and yes, he did go on to heaven, God asked him, where have you been? To and fro, up and down, over the face of the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Blameless, he's upright. He's a great guy. And Satan says... (laughs) He's only good because you're too good to him. Take away the stuff, he'll no longer be good. He's accusing Job. It didn't work. God allowed him to do that. It didn't work. He comes back. Yeah, see, Job. I knew, I know Job. I know my heart. I know his heart. Well, you take away his health, then he's really gonna curse you and die. All right? You can do it. Don't you kill him. See, even Satan has limits, and God had to allow him to do these things. The point being is that he is an accuser, and he wants to accuse you. Don't fall for it. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's his work, his righteousness, not your own. Yes, if you've fallen into sin and you feel the Spirit's conviction as you read the scriptures, or maybe another believer comes up to you and calls you on on that, you make quick amends with God. You repent of your sin, but you dust yourself off because you know that in the end, you're covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The gift of salvation is not taken away from you, you walk in that. The accuser's a liar. What else does Satan do? He deceives. He's a deceiver, is he not? Uh, Look, you're in Ephesians. Look back at at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Look at uh, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Here's the key. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. What he does to deceive is package the lie up with just enough truth that makes you go, huh, never thought of it like that before. You've got to be buried in the word of God in order to understand. And we'll see that as we go through the armor pieces here in a minute. You've got to be buried in the word of God so that you can identify the deception of the evil one. Secular worldviews, pop culture, all, all trying to deceive us, to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ and his coming. So he's accuser. He's a deceiver. He's a tempter. He's a tempter. Remember in the garden? Did God really say? Is he really good? Has he tempted you with those thoughts? Is he really good? Is it really that big of a deal? If you just do this thing, is it really that big of a deal? It's a temptation. This is what Satan longs to do. And it's to get our eyes off of Jesus Christ. It's to keep us from standing in this spiritual battle. Now, we stand in the power of God, in the armor of God, so that we can stand, and not just stand, stand firm against these schemes. Again, we're not told to attack or advance against him, but to hold firm to the truth of God's word. If we're to advance anywhere, let's advance in being like Christ. Let's advance in living holy lives. Let's advance in our discipleship. This is why we have tables out here where you can sign up for discipleship. It's not just a program. This is our life. This is how we grow in holiness and being just like him. That's where we advance. We don't advance against Satan. Why would we fight a battle that has already been won? Seems kind of pointless, doesn't it? Now, that's the first tactic. You will be victorious in the spiritual battle if you stand in the power of God. But the second battle tactic is that the victorious Christian identifies the true enemies of God. You will be victorious if you learn and train yourself to identify who the real enemies of God and yourself actually are. Let's look at verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle, see, we're fighting here. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He starts that with a four. That's like, like a causal conjunction. It's like another reason to put on the armor of God, right? He just mentioned that in the previous verse. And again, we're going to get to that in just a second. He says, our struggle. So who's our struggle not against? Flesh and blood, the people that you see in front of you, the people that might be mocking Jesus Christ or trying to take away, quote, unquote, your rights to do what Christ wants you to do. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against those people. It's really important because our, our nation continues to slide further into apostasy and sin. We're going to see more and more people who are outspokenly against Christ and his church, against you. But we have to remember that they... Not the enemy. Why do we behave like they are? Why do we behave like our fight is against flesh and blood? In fact, we should pity those people. Jesus was filled with compassion when he saw the crowds. Because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Were they harassed by the Rulers and powers, world forces of this darkness and spiritual force, they were harassed and he was filled with compassion for them. What's our first reaction when we see flesh and blood who are trying to wage war on the outside of us? Is our first anger at them? How dare they? Are you stupid? How could you have said something so moronic? Or are we like Christ and filled with compassion? They can't help it. They are fighting a spiritual war. They just don't know it. They're slaves. They can do nothing else. Oh, free will, free will. All right. They're doing what they want, but what they want is only evil continually. It's like Jesus told the Jews, you do what your father did. Your father's the devil. That's what they're doing, and they don't know it. That should make us break down, cry, and pray for them. That's not what our fight is. Actually, look back at, or forward, I should say. No, no, back. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I should have gone, with oh my God, on that one. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at verse 3. So, the context of this, you know, uh, as thanks to Pastor Scott going through 1 Corinthians with us in particular. Yeah, you know, the Corinthian church was a difficult place and there were so many people that were attacking Paul's authority as an apostle, attacking how he did ministry, attacking what he looked like and how he spoke and it's all kinds of attacks and, and there were some more attacks and Paul says, you know, you know me, I'm, I'm bold in my letters but with you, I'm kind of meek and humble a little bit but I got to deal with these people. When I come, I have to deal with those who are saying that we're operating in the flesh, we're not true apostles. And this is where you get to verse 3, chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Oh, We walk in the flesh. We have this flesh, though we see people who attack us in the flesh. We don't war in the flesh. But too often, that's our first response. Act like the world. We attack them. We attack other people like we see political pundits attack one another on the news. Instead, looking at them as helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what Christ is talking about here, what Paul is talking about here, has nothing to do with our rights, nothing to do with our privileges, nothing to do with our American cultural Christianity. We're going to do what God wants us to do, whether the government says we can do it or not, period. We obey God rather than man. But in the end, we do not war according to the flesh. We said, Well, it says destroying, right? Destroying arguments and fortresses and... He's talking about the spiritual side of things, right? That's what he said. We know war according to the flesh. He's talking about the unseen forces that are behind all these bad and foul and satanic ideas that are out there. And anything that's not of the gospel is satanic in the end. So don't think of it as being something super creepy or devious. We do that with the gospel, That's how we break down fortresses. The message that we give, and we'll talk about that when we get to the sword of the spirit. The message that we give is a message of amnesty. The kingdom of light has broken into this darkness, and the warrior is coming. He's going to destroy you all because of sin. Here's an offer of amnesty, the gospel. Christ died for sinners. Believe, confess. That's how you destroy these things, because people that come against us in the flesh, they don't know why they do what they do. We need to tell them. We want to get to the good news, sell the, good, the bad news too. You know, the good is so we don't know how good the good news is unless we contrast it with the bad news. And the bad news is that you're a slave. You're captured by the spiritual darkness of this world. The Christ has come. He's broken into this. He already has victory. The enemy has been disarmed. Confess your sins before the Lord. Call upon him that you might be saved. If you haven't done that, I urge you, call upon the Lord today. Lay yourself down before him. Confess your sins before him. He will save you because the king is coming. The warrior is coming. We read it there in Revelation. And he's coming to destroy all darkness. Don't be caught up in that. Be saved. But how do we do that, though? So how do we present this message of amnesty in the right way? If we don't do it the wrong way, how do we do it the right way? So let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians, And and actually, let's go back to Ephesians 4 again. And we'll look at verse 14. Ephesians 4, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every winded doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But this is how you do it. We just learned what we didn't, we're not supposed to do. Now we're about to learn what we are supposed to do. Speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's how we do it in love because we truly love them. Maybe you struggle with loving those who are opposed to Christ, opposed to you, pray for that love. Christ freely gives that love because he wants us to love what he loves. He loves the same people. That's what he does. That's what he's great at doing. Pray for that love. See, that, that speaking the truth of love is connected to growing up in all aspects into him, into Christ Jesus, who on the cross being nailed and having his life essence, his blood being poured out of them, said, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Even at that point, he showed compassion and love. Oh, may we as a church, Riverbend Community Church, be marked as a people who stands firm against Satan's schemes, but we do it in love. Is our offer of amnesty, the gospel, is it offered in love? Or is it offered in an antagonistic kind of way? Oh, that's how you win the battle, ladies and gentlemen. You do it when you identify the true enemies of God. There's a third battle tactic. And the third is this, the victorious Christian dons the armor of God. I know this is the one you really wanted to get to. Don's the armor of God. Let's look at verse uh, 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. You noticing a pattern? Put on the armor, put on the armor. Take on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, oh, here we go again, to stand firm. So he says in this passage, therefore, in light of the fact that we now can identify who the true enemies of God are, I can lay my own worldly weapons down, my fleshly weapons down, because I need something very different here. I can't fight this fight the way God wants me to do it, using the same old fleshly weapons. I now know that there's unseen forces that are in this fight, so now I need something divine. Divine. You need to put it on so that you can resist and stand firm. And Here's where they are. Here's your armor pieces. And these armor pieces, obviously, some think that Paul was inspired by the Roman guards who had him under house arrest. That could be true. And there is some validity to that. But these armor pieces also have a rich history in the Old Testament. We'll look at them as, though, as we go through. The first one, verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth the belt of truth likely if you were going to use a Roman equivalent it was a leather belt that had straps that would kind of hang down for extra protection and this belt kind of held everything together and it also carried your weapons which we'll look at in a minute and other things that you might need it's in the Old Testament the belt was also used to kind of pull up your robe a little bit so you can run and have uh, uh, an easier time running. See, Paul is referring to wrapping yourself together with the objective truth of the gospel. It's objective. It's not subjective. It is an objective truth what Christ has done. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on opinions or cultural winds that may be blowing. Christ died for sinners. Christ was raised so that we can walk in newness of life. We are girded with that truth But I also think that it means that Christians' faithfulness to the truth as well. And I say this because in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, uh, he's talking about this divine warrior. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins. Faithfulness, the belt about his waist. The truth. The word of God. Does this hold you together? What holds you together when things get tough? Philosophy, emotional feelings, pep talks from someone, or is it the unerring truth of God's word that never fails? To be held together by it, we need to know it. We need to be in it. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. And as we read it, we pray, Holy Spirit, give me the wisdom to really know what your word is saying. This is why we encourage you to sign up for as many discipleship opportunities as possible because everything we do is coming from a gospel, word-saturated point of view. This is the belt of truth. How else are we going to be able to know the, the, the devil's deceptions, his deceitful scheming? You have no idea what's deceitful unless you know what the truth is. We get into the truth, we hold ourselves together with it, and we can identify when something deceitful is coming he also says not only the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness now this seems to be drawn directly from isaiah 59 verse 17 where the prophet is talking about the divine warrior the messiah who had put on righteousness as a breastplate is what it says so what righteousness hint it's not ours We have no righteousness of our own. We stand in the armor of Christ's righteousness. We call that the doctrine of imputation. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not infused within us. Catholic tradition would teach that there's little bit of Christ's righteousness kind of infused in you and through the sacraments and all that kind of stuff you're to build it to a salvific level and if it hasn't been built up to a salvific level then that's what purgatory is for to burn out the bad stuff no we believe this divine exchange happens when we come to Christ my sin is imputed to Jesus Christ and his righteousness is imputed to me he is punished on the cross as if he committed the very sins that I have committed and yet will commit. But I get His righteousness, and it covers me all up. And what does a breastplate do? Protects your heart. Or even in the Old Testament, not only protects your heart, it kind of protects this midsection. And in Hebrew tradition, your your midsection area, like we say, our heart—you know, our love center, our feelings—it's our heart right up here. In Hebrew, it's kind of your midsection. <laughs> your stomach is your, the seat of your, your will, your emotions, your desires. Well, a breastplate covers all of that. Because what does Satan want to do? He wants to accuse you. He wants to tempt you. And the breastplate of righteousness is there to protect you. It defends and protects our hearts and minds. And any soldier worth his or his salt would never go on a battlefield without some kind of protection. We call called a full battle route. Put on our flak vest. Throw that thing on anytime we're in a difficult situation to protect your chest, the vital organs, the breastplate of righteousness protects your vital organ, your heart, as you stand before God. Let's move forward. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I love this passage, Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Preparation of the gospel of peace. Isn't it true? The gospel brings peace. Peace with who? Or with whom? God our Father. We were alienated with him before Jesus Christ because of our sin. We're warring factions. We're in two separate armies because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We now have peace with Almighty God. And he says we're to put those shoes on our feet. And it's like the preparation of the gospel peace. I love that. Do you prepare yourself with the gospel every single day? Because you face battles every single day. How do you prepare you recite the gospel to yourself. You remind yourself of that gospel. You rehearse it in your mind. You speak it out. Know, a lot of times we get flustered and I don't know how to you know, evangelize my neighbor. Or speak. Just keep preaching the gospel to yourself. You'll eventually get it. and You'll say the same things to your neighbors and to your friends. It prepares you for this fight. What's interesting though is if Paul is using some Roman soldier imagery, they had some unique sandals. They weren't running sandals. They weren't meant for running fast or long distances. They were sandals that were strapped pretty tight. In the bottom of the soles, they had these little things called hobnails that would stick out. And, and think ancient world metal cleats except not super long, but enough to give you traction in the ground. What the Romans were notoriously famous for was holding the line. They would create this big shield wall, and as the barbarians would charge forward at them, they would hold the line, hold their shields up, the barbarians would charge into them, and they wouldn't be pushed back. Those hobnails kind of helped them with those, that traction. makes perfect sense in light of what we are called to do, and that's to stand. The enemy's going to push hard on us. Our flesh is going to push hard on us. We stand firm and we do it with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel gives us all the traction we need to fight against these things. Gospel of peace. You know, and it's this thing. It is called the, the good news of peace. So is the message when we engage the world, is it one of peace or is it one of antagonism? About that for a little bit. Are we antagonizing? Are we giving words of peace? That's what the gospel does, though. It brings peace. And granted, Jesus said, "I've come to bring sword." Too, the gospel is going to divide people. It will. There's going to be people into camps—those who believe and those who don't believe. But the way and the manner that we present it should be one of peace, because that's what the gospel really is all about. We've got to move. Next one is the shield of faith verse 16 in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and roman shields they weren't these little round bucklers that you had on your forearm these were massive shields they were like four feet tall they were like solid wood and they would be covered with animal skins these things were really meant to protect your body And oftentimes they would dip these things in water because the enemy had a notorious habit. They did too, but enemies had this notorious habit of dipping their arrows in hot oil, lighting them on fire, and shooting them at you. You know what's worse than an arrow coming at you? A flaming arrow coming at you. And here Paul is using this imagery of the shield of faith to not only stop the piercing nature of the enemy's darts, attacks against you, but to extinguish them completely. And you know, sometimes it feels like we are under attack relentlessly. The enemy is, just has onslaught after onslaught. Our flesh just doesn't seem to quit. At least mine doesn't. It's always trying to rear its ugly head. Attack after attack. The shield of faith holds your ground. It keeps those arrows from piercing through your armor and into your heart. But not only that, it extinguishes them puts them away so what is this faith faith in what faith in god's protection the old testament it is god that is repeatedly described as our shield in fact in genesis 15 verse 1 god said to abram i am your shield and your very great reward psalm 30 verse 5 god is a shield to those who take refuge in him We need to have a resolute faith in God's protection. You know what the problem with a shield, though, is? It gets kind of heavy. Our shield arms might get tired. And we might be tempted to drop it. Roman soldiers would sometimes do that, too, because after a while it gets filled with arrows. And you get tired of holding that thing up. And there have been times where they would drop their shields because they just couldn't carry it anymore. Now you're exposed. Keep that shield up. Faith strong. And that's what the preparation of the gospel. Peace all, all of this is one big uh, conglomeration of weapons that God gives. They're all interconnected with each other. You feel your faith failing. Go to the Lord in prayer. Ask God to refresh you, to refresh your faith. Recite and rehearse the gospel to yourself. Pour yourself in the word. Turn off the television for a little bit and get into the word so that your shield of faith would be strong. Don't drop it, whatever you do. He also says, in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. Again, in Isaiah 59, verse 17, the Messiah puts on the helmet of salvation. Salvation from wickedness. But don't think of it as salvation as to one day I will be saved when God calls me home and all this is over. I love, I love gospel music i really do sometimes i kind of get in the whole you know life is terrible but jesus is going to come back one day and everything's gonna be okay again i do think what paul is talking about here is this experiential faith this knowledge i am saved that when i am attacked when i am accused even if i stumble in sin i can pick myself up knowing that salvation has covered me by jesus christ that it is there with me at all times sometimes knowing that is enough for you to get up. You might feel bad about yourself. You pray for that. You say, God, forgive me for what I've done. But you don't be disheartened that you've lost your salvation. It's a gift that was given to you. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. Put on that helm of salvation and protect your noggin. Matthew 10 and verse 28, Jesus said, Fear not those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's so what this helmet of salvation is all about. And he also says, take up the sword of the spirit. And you're like, oh, see, now we're supposed to go on the offensive. Why wouldn't we have a sword? Right? Well, if we're using Roman in- imagery, it's a short sword. It's a gladius. It's really short. It's not long. It's meant to kind of swing a little bit while the enemy is charging into you. You know, I, when I see, sometimes I see Christians do this with their sword, You know, they're using the word of God, and they're using it kind of in an antagonistic way. And to me, it's akin of, like, giving two toddlers uh, two little lightsabers, little fake lightsabers, and they go at it. And so when they have sword fights, you know, are they careful with it? They start swinging that thing everywhere, and somebody is going to start crying in five minutes. And the other one says, oh, I didn't mean it. Well, of course you didn't mean it, but was it really smart to do that? Well, that's sometimes how we wield the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And sometimes we can wield the Word of God in such a way and not in love that we can hurt people with it. And then, oh, I didn't mean it. of course you didn't mean it. But maybe we need to use a little bit of wisdom. That's why it's the sword of the Spirit. We need the empowering work of the Spirit of God to wield the Word of God properly. But even though it's an offensive weapon... The whole image is still one of defense. We hold that word of God. We do what Jesus did. We're being attacked by the enemy. We use the word of God to repel those attacks. Satan knows the word of God too. You use it back, but you use it correctly in context because you know it and you love it. Truth, of course, and love. And all of this armor, what we used to call battle rattle, is great. But you're just standing there. You got to know what to do with it, don't you? I mean, it's pointless to have armor if you don't know how to use it. But if you're putting on the armor of God, you'll have that victory in your spiritual battles. But then that last battle tactic is this the victorious Christian executes the battle plans of God. You're not just given armor for no reason, you're just to stand there and look pretty. We all look like, we're like people who wear uniforms, right? That's the whole saying. We're not there just to look good. We're there to do something with it. And this is verses 18 through 20. This is what we do with our armor. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on behalf that utterance may be given to me in opening of my mouth. To make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it. I may speak boldly. As I ought to speak. So what are God's battle plans? What do we do with the armor that he's given to us? The first thing we do. Is we stay on the alert. You have to be on the alert. How can we withstand the evil day? Resist the devil's scheming. If we're not alert to it in the first place. And you know what Peter said, 1 Peter 5, verse 8: be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You may not be alert, but someone else is. And he's looking for those who are not alert. Are you alert? Are you watchful? How do you watch? Well, he says, with prayer and petition. You're in prayer. Open my eyes, God. Show me how to live this life in a way that pleases you. If I see people coming against me, I'm praying for them. I say prayer. It says prayer and petition. I'm petitioning for people. I'm praying for my enemies. That's what Jesus said. Pray for your enemies. You're praying for the saints that are around with you. You're being alert and, and vigilant. That's what every soldier should be doing. Looking for signs of the enemy to fight against. The devil's crafty. We need to be on the lookout for it. So many times we're blindsided by the devil's attacks or our own fleshly attacks because we're just not paying attention. We're not ready and sober and alert. We're to do it. Pray our petition. Is it praying in the spirit, in the power of the spirit who dwells within us using the word of God? Sometimes you don't know how to pray. You've got a whole book of things you can pray. What could be better than praying back God's own word? Sometimes you don't know how to pray in a situation. Pick this up and start praying it back to God. Get into the word. Pray. There's a sense of urgency in all of this. Do it with perseverance. So be on the alert and pray. But then he says, bold proclamation of the gospel. So we stand firm, being alert, praying the entire time. Boldly proclaiming the message of amnesty to the citizens of darkness. Always boldly proclaiming. Maybe you're like, I'm not so sure I can be bold about it. Then pray for the boldness. You afraid God might give it to you? He will. That's what he wants. He wants you to be bold proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't feel bold or brave enough to do it, pray that God gives it to you. Pray for you to be bold in your witness for Christ and your growth in being like Christ. Pray for your elders, your teachers, your leaders, those among us. Pray for that bold witness for the cause of Jesus Christ. Pray for victory in all of these spiritual battles. Pray and be bold with the gospel. And if you follow the battle plans that God has set out for us while wearing the armor of God, identifying the true enemy of God, standing firm in his power, you will be victorious. That's why he gives us the word. God wants you to be victorious, but you have to do it his way. So when we think we could do it on our own, that's when things get a little upside down. Do it the way God wants it done. Glorify him in that and watch the victory come to you. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy and your life will be a bed of roses. It's not. It never will be. But you will never succumb to the evil one or his schemes and plans. We will gloriously wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, we're not going to have our closing song day, not because I'm going long for other reasons but so let me close us out in a prayer and a benediction before the lord father i thank you for this time that you've given to us lord you called us to be soldiers enable us to stand firm in the power that you supply wearing the armor that you supply help us to identify the true enemy help us not to fight the war the way the world does To do it the way that you call us to do it lord pray that you would allow us Uh, to grow in our understanding of what it means to be in this fight. Lord, only you can accomplish these things, but we do it for your glory. But all the while, knowing that the battle is won because of what our Lord and Savior has done for us. Help us not to shrink back from the battle, for you called us to it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming to worship with us. You're dismissed.